Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, one of the founding members of not only Mr. Bungle, but Secret Chiefs 3, and just one of the coolest guys in heavy music, and music in general, Trey Spruins. Trey, how are things? I'm good. I have no complaints. I, you know, in this day and age, to have no complaints is incredible. That means like I'm over the moon. <laughs> Did you think that you were ever going to be getting prepared for a live streaming event in 2020? Did you, did you think that that's where live music was going to get you <laughs> this late in your career? Oh, man, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of hanging onto the horse and seeing where it goes at this point and kind of, you know, thankful that I'm one of the very few people that gets to do something that's halfway live music. You know, I'm like... Uh, really lucky in that regard i have no idea what to expect from a from a pay-per-view event but it's cool because we get to play together as a band and uh you know be in the room together and make music which is something that i think you know not many people are getting to do right now so this is going to actually be recorded live it's not some pre-recorded performance we are going to do uh it will be pre-recorded in the sense that we're going to uh play through the set ahead of time and then it will be broadcast um and i think how it's happening is that we're going to just like we're we're just like the record you know the record is pretty much we went in and um recorded the way we recorded the show um with lot without lots of overdubs and that kind of thing on this one we're just going to do straight through the set twice and see which one of which of that is the best kind of thing so are you recording actually in eureka again for this this is information I cannot disclose, oh, okay. unfortunately. That's all good. Well, <laughs> I am not at liberty to say. <laughs> I was just wondering if you were bringing that original spark back to this performance as well. But I will say it's really cool that you decided to re-record the original demo. What brought about this and honestly the Mr. Bungle reunion in general? Yeah, I mean, that's just it. The, the, the Mr. Bungle reunion is like this big cloud that's been hanging over all of us, maybe all the more since we've all been working together on musical projects, I think since 2009 or something, you know, like the band took its break and then then we're back together working on different musical projects. And the big question is like, well, when's the reunion, you know? And, um, you know, for us, I think it's the same as it's ever been. You're not, you know, we, we, we're, uh, Mr. Bungle is a band of kind of collective inspiration. So when, uh, when the creative spark happens, it happens sort of to everybody simultaneously. Uh, you know, if that wasn't happening, then no reunion was happening. Um, and that was just kind of the way things were rolling up until Trevor, you know, came to a, it was a Dead Cross Secret Chiefs tour, came to a show in Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, it was Patton, Trevor, Lombardo, and myself. He kind of gathered us all together and, and said, okay, what if, you know, for us, going back to our roots is not, you know, the thing of going back and playing some good time rock and roll. It's playing like Slayer, thrash metal, death metal type riffs. Why don't we go back to our roots and, and re-record the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny demo? Or, like, revisit that music with Lombardo in the drum chair. 
this was the spark that we needed, you know? I was just like, this is so insane and such a fucking good idea because, first of all, that music is the center of the band. It's the heart of the band. It's how we all started collaborating together as musicians. And it's never had a proper presentation. And secondly, what what an absolutely insane thing to do. This is good on every level. Well, what brought about the addition of Scott Ian then? Well, that was sort of, you know, with Lombardo already sitting there, it's like, you know, we, we were obsessed, you know, to the point of, you know, Mike, Trevor, and I could sit in, in air drum all the Slayer records up until that point, you know, that we were really fixated on the drums. And um, if you were to, to apply the same thing to guitar, like, who, who were we obsessed with at the time when we made the... the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny demo, it would have to be Scotty. And I mean, you know, the SOD stuff, the Fistful of Metal Anthrax stuff, just a really fast right hand picking, all the precision. We were all about that at that time. So, you know, those two guys are, are the, the the giants, you know, for that moment in our musical development. Those those two musicians are seriously like the, the fantasy giants to have. Uh, I mean, just the idea of having them in your band is another just completely ridiculous teenage fantasy, you know, ridiculous. I was 15 when we did that music, and now, you know, Scott Ian's playing these riffs that I wrote when I was 15. It's, like, it's unbelievable. What was the inspiration behind, like, throwing the Corrosion and Conformity cover on this new album as well, too, then? We we played that song a lot, like, in the 90s, actually. Um, so that, that was sort of the natural... We had a whole bunch of covers that we were... Um, doing when we played the stuff live in February. Um, but since the Raging Wrath, re- the revisiting of the Raging Wrath, the Easter Bunny thing is sort of about this legacy thing of our relationship to thrash and punk and hardcore and that kind of thing. I think that just the fact that we had played the COC stuff and COC was also, uh, I mean, you know, Trevor had their big skull logo with the spikes drawn on the back of his jacket when we were kids and stuff. So it was really just we got to do that one. I mean, that COC was, was also a huge, um, I wouldn't say, you know, everybody talks about their influences. To me, it's just like, this is what was in the air, you know, and we were obsessively listening to all of it. For us, COC was really like the crossover band. So did this album get recorded? Was it finished before the pandemic really hit? Or were you still trying to finish things up in the studio when the world essentially shut down? so weird uh we you know we had finished we'd almost finished that little mini tour and um you know actually lombardo was not feeling great uh in in uh new york before our first for our last show in san francisco was possessed and um he was really sick actually and um and then my wife got sick and I got sick. This is like, you know, three days before we're going to go into the studio. We all got really sick and then um, sort of recovered uh, and then started recording. Uh, so it was like, it was a very close uh, thing. And then we were done recording within two weeks. And then the pandemic, like the shutdown was, I think, about two weeks after that. You know, in retrospect, we know that there were... Um, there were people around who tested positive for the 
um, at least for the antibody stuff. And I don't think that we had coronavirus or, you know, who knows, maybe some weird strain of it or whatever the hell. But um, something, we were sick with something right at the beginning of the recording process that a bunch of us were. So, yeah, it was, it was, that was kind of weird, actually. How have you noticed the rollout for this album during the pandemic? Is this something you've never experienced before? Or is it really just on on for the course and it's just you would promote this the same way that you would any other record? Yeah, I think we just... It's not that we've been ignoring the pandemic, but I, yeah, I think it's, it wouldn't be a whole lot different up until this pay-per-view event. Um, although I will say... It was. It's really weird that you know we're doing something called the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny, and uh, the shutdown was happening like right around Easter. <laughs> that was something we could have maybe milked a little bit more, but I don't know. Maybe that would have been in bad taste. It's just too much suffering, real suffering, going on to fuck around with that. I've always been so curious about your your Russian orchestra work. Can you tell me all about that? It's just. It's such a cool thing that you were making this music for this 61-piece traditional Ru- Russian orchestra. That's just really cool in my mind. You know what's funny, too, is, I, like, you know, I I scored it because the, the first, like, the memo that I had was that it was a 61-stand orchestra, and it ended up being, like, 85 or something, like, bigger than than what, um, what it was supposed to be. It was amazing. Um, I mean, start to finish on that, it's... Um, a friend of mine who, uh, who actually works with promoting bands brought Secret Chief to Israel a couple of times, and he's from Ukraine, and his girlfriend um, is Russian, and she's part of the Kansk um, Film Festival there. And that's kind of how that connection came about. And um, essentially, he knew... That promoter, he knew he knows what my skill set is, and that I can orchestrate and do all of that kind of stuff. And uh, I think he, he, it was probably his idea ultimately. Like, well, we can get this orchestra, this traditional Russian orchestra that has, you know, huge, a full range of balalaikas, you know, uh, soprano, alto, tenor, uh, full full range of domras, same thing, you know, instead of violins and and that the Western orchestration, I had to sort of imagine what this was going to sound like. Oh, not to mention the bass balalakas, which are like 10 feet tall or something. Uh, you know, so just sort of imagining the um, the sonority of these instruments in sections was a, a a bit of a leap of faith, I have to say, on, on my part, that I could think, okay, well, this is kind of like writing for cello sections. It's kind of like writing for a viola section, but not really. I mean, they're, they're all plucked instruments, so you have to, you know, make them do tremolos and, you know, things that they're that these instruments normally are doing in an ensemble setting. But that was a was a bit of a a a learning curve and b a like you know trying to imagine it. And uh, so, you know, I spent a couple months, maybe three months, like really working my ass off on that stuff. And um, <laughs> we got there. We got to Siberia in the Krasnoyarsk airport, my first, my first touching of Siberian soil was pretty much literally on my face. Like I fell down the stairs getting off the airplane (laughs) and and I broke my foot like bad. It was terrible. 
so we had to go to the, the hospital, and that's a whole other story, like a kind of, um, you know, it's not like they're going to deal with American insurance or something. You know, it was very, very strange. They were very nice and um, fixed me up and everything. And so I'm sitting there in the meeting the orchestra for the first time, limping and hobbling in on, like, World War One crutches. And uh, they played the first tune for me, and it was like, oh, my God. Like, you know... I had some help for sure in the uh, orchestration department. There, there was a, a a woman there who really understood what I was trying to do, and obviously really understands how to how to distribute sonorities within that kind of an ensemble. So she she definitely smoothed out some of my rough edges on on what I had written for them. But holy crap, it was so fun! I mean, it was just so great. It sounded sounded brilliant. About the hardest part of of, of it as ever, this would be true for, with a Western orchestra as well, is when you try to integrate a rock rhythm section, like a loud rock band, with an orchestra, it just introduces all kinds of problems, you know, and uh, so we were dealing mostly with that. Like, their, their playing was perfect, the conductor was brilliant. All of that was great. Was, we, we spent most of our time in rehearsal working out, like, you know, how to how to integrate uh, a loud rock rhythm section with a with an orchestral ensemble, but in the end, many that all came off beautifully. We, we where we were rehearsing was in Krasnoyarsk, and we had to drive to Kansk, which is like a hour and a half drive across. Like you know, you can't you can't even imagine the potholes. You know, like people's heads were for we we were sitting in the chairs like the whole orchestra too. You sit in these chairs and these buses, and you hit a pothole so big that you you would literally be ejected up to the ceiling and hit your head on the ceiling. It's just amazing, like you know, all this violence on the way out there with these delicate instruments. It's a it's a it's a very intriguing place to 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 work and do music. The, the people who, who who live there and dedicate themselves to music, I have huge admiration for them. Have you been back to Russia since? No, I guess we did the, you know, we finished out that tour and we played St. Petersburg and Moscow and stuff, but we haven't been been back. I would love to go back. What do you find the hardest instrument to compose for is then? You mean in that ensemble or just in general? Just in general, really. You know what? This is a, this all sounds strange because I work with violin all the time um, and I've worked with you know some of my my best friends Avon Kang is like one of the most brilliant violinists in the world uh, but at the same time you know like so I, I wrote a piece for the Kronos Quartet um, not too too long ago and I'm just learning and learning and learning and learning and learning and man this instrument is just it's impossible to get to the to the end of this instrument. I, I can't get my I can't get my head completely around it. The possibilities of it just keep going on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> it's I feel like every time I write for violin, I feel like I'm starting over from scratch. I've been doing it for thirty years now, and I still like feel like an absolute infant in new fight when I when I try to write for violin. It's it's funny. My wife is actually a violin player, and she will tell you the exact same thing about it. <laughs> so it's it's funny that you mentioned violin. It's just ridiculously complex, 
you know, even, I mean, the other, all the instruments in the bowed string family sort of share the, some of these dynamics, but the violin is just exposed because it's in a higher register and those, the harmonics of it project and, you know, we notice them in our ears more than any other instrument. So the writing has to be good. Otherwise the violinist can't make it work. <laughs> the writing has to be, it has to, you have to know how to fit it in with the other instruments. You have to know how to, how to uh, anticipate what a violinist themselves are going to do with the instrument. If you don't, it's not, there's not much they can do to help you. You know, you just exposed how terrible you are at writing for the violin. You've got to dip your toes into film scores a little bit. How did you feel about your time doing that? And can we expect any more film scores from you coming up? I mean, the thing is, I used to feel like most of the, the music that I do has this kind of cinematic quality to it, but it's, it's too crowded for, a, for actual images, like to, to accompany an actual film. Like, you know, if you listen to a, a Wagner piece, um, you know, a, a piece for an ensemble for people to just sit down and listen to music versus a Wagner opera where there's a libretto and the music is an accompaniment to, to something else that's happening on stage, multimedia, basically. It's really two different things. And I've never actually, I've never written um, from the perspective of soundtrack or like accompaniment i've never done it uh, i think i'd be good at it but you know nobody's asked me to do it uh, seriously actually and so the the stuff that i've done that is sort of soundtrackish, uh i'm just going to say it's making up for the fact that there is no visual element and it's absolutely too crowded for for there to be a visual element so if i was going to do it i would put on a, a totally different hat as a you know as a composer and arranger and orchestrator and all that and serve you know serve the, the film i've never done that okay so how much did film have an impact on you growing up and actually how much does it have on you currently it's still it's pretty huge I, you know it's some of the um but kind of on the subject the um i, I listen to a lot of soundtrack composers um whether it's Bernard Herrmann or Nino Rota. I was really into Nino Rota in the early 90s. Um, and, you know, of course, all the Italian um, greats. Um, and it just keeps going and going. And I keep discovering new great film composers like Francois Roubaix, like French composer, brilliant. Uh, but, like, um, maybe what's happened is that the, the people who, who now, who I consider to be great film composers are pe people like Jerry Goldsmith, you know. Again, it's uh, the people who who really know how to serve the film kind of thing. is a thing I'm really starting to to appreciate more and more. Whereas where I started with the whole thing is, man, I'm, I'm listening to Nino Rota records as records. I don't even care about the, the film. Even though they're Fellini films, I'm not, I'm not all that, that's not what I'm focused on that's kind of changed over time where now I'm like really thinking about like, wow, you know, the, there's this great video you can see on YouTube of Jerry Goldsmith um, conducting his score for the Mephisto Waltz, which is actually a great film. Um, but what a great, like, I don't know, 20 minutes seeing how that process works and how he's 
doing with the orchestra and, and then how he's in the, the room with the producers and the directors and they're all like chain smoking mixing the audio track with the with the music and you know essentially creating and editing the, the film right there like there's so many different hats the composer is wearing in this process of, of writing for film that you know, it's a very different approach than, um, like, I think it was, somebody told me they had a conversation with Emil Morricone, and he said, you know, don't think about the film, think about the soundtrack, you know? And you hear that when you hear Morricone. And, you know, he's made all these great, incredible soundtrack records, but it's a complete, it's a very different philosophy than, you know, a guy like Jerry Goldsmith who's in there you know, really, really working with all these other um, elements in the in the filmmaking process and, and doing it in a very detailed way, essentially as his job. You know, like really taking responsibility for all of that. Well, what were some of those formative films that really like that you gravitated towards, visually um, wise? Let's see. What then? Visually wise. Um, I would say, and this this isn't about really a soundtrack, but yeah, like the, the film Possession by Andrzej Zalowski is like a, maybe like one of my most fundamentally, it, it had the most impact on me probably out of any other film. I saw it like somewhere in the mid-90s or something. And the, yeah, the way that hit me was, I saw a new, new possibility for, for, for what film can do to you, to where it can take you psychologically and um, a kind of, you know, it's very serious. It's not, you know, as a horror film, it's nothing you're sitting there like laughing at. You know, if you were in a movie theater and people were laughing, like we, my wife and I went and saw Repulsion not too long ago and it was just like despicable hearing these fucking people in the audience laughing, you know, during Repulsion for fuck's sake. If, if somebody laughed during possession, I would probably punch them. I'd probably just get up out of my seat and punch them right in the face. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, to answer your question, it's possession, I think, is, has, has for many years been like the, the, the film that has moved me the, the most. Where do you see the future of, of live performance going? Do you think that we're going to just continue to get these these essential on-demand shows as well as live shows when the world opens back up? Or, or, or do you think it's going to bleed back into live shows? You know, it's funny. Like, uh, I feel like we have to look at what was going on before the pandemic because it wasn't good. Um, it was like, you know, we did the, the bungle shows and I mean, the first thing that happened is like half the tickets are getting scalped instantly, you know, through the system. It's not even like a bunch of, it's not a criminal syndicate necessarily. I mean, it is, but it's not officially recognized as one. Um, and that's one layer, you know, that's on, on a, a bigger level where you're selling out big venues. Um, but I spend most of my life in a different world than that. And um, that hasn't been particularly easy either. It's just kind of getting worse and worse and worse before the pandemic where, you know, the bigger fish you are, meaning the longer you've been around and the more people um, who run things recognize the name and can feel 
confident that you're going to bring people in the door. I mean, that's solely what's deciding whether or not you get gigs with attention to booking agencies and all that kind of stuff. So it was already getting squeezed. The pandemic happens and then everything gets screwed. I almost feel like there's a good side of that where, okay, this is an opportunity to try to reform some of this stuff. I haven't seen a lot of motion in that direction, but it would be so great if, you know, I mean, let's just remember, like the, the ticket scalping thing was also going with sporting events and all of that. And it's the public who's getting super screwed on that. So I think it would be like, you know, the public that would have to somehow organize and stand up and say, we're not going to allow this kind of shit to happen anymore. I would love to see some kind of organizations that would, that would take it upon themselves to, I don't know, mobilize people in an effort to uh, prevent uh, the, the kinds of agencies that have taken over live events and made them so expensive and so inaccessible to, and also made artists who are not the biggest artists on the face of the earth um, uh, give them a, a chance to, to actually do what they do, hone their craft and have an audience. It'd be really nice to, to, if there was some to kind of restore some, um, I don't know, the way they were in the fucking 80s at least, you know? <laughs> I mean, you have to go back a pretty long ways to have it be a little bit more workable of a situation for everybody. It was getting really, really, really unsustainable and out of control right before the pandemic, I thought. Well, even bungle aside, what kinds of problems were you having with like the technical and the business side of things, even when you were performing with Secret Chiefs 3? What is like the one thing you want to see change the most from this? I would want to see that, um, you know, the, the, the whole patronage element that's been going on with like Patreon and that kind of stuff, there's a part of me that, like I've never done that kind of fundraising. I have this kind of, I don't know, it's a weird, stubborn, capitalistic streak where I, I always feel like, well, if people, I should be able to motivate people to buy my stuff. You know, if I have a, a product that I'm going to sell them, my deal is that my product, the standard of it is going to be good. Like, you know, the, the audience, people who listen to what I do, they know it's going to be at a, at a very high standard. So, okay, I have job security because they're going to buy it because they know it's going to be good. And, you know, when that part slips into, well, everybody is in the same boat and it doesn't matter whether you put $20,000 into your record and had all of these really um, fine craftspeople involved in it, the guy who made electronic music for 10 bucks on GarageBand is, is right next to you in the exact same bracket as you. This is a re reality that you have to deal with. So for me, the, the patronage system, I understand why it's kind of coming up. But also, there's something there's something so weird about just, you know, artists going out and begging for, for these alms from the audience. Like, to me, that's just bizarre. Like... I get it, and I think it works in a, in a certain way, but I would like to see a patronage system come into to view where there was some kind of source, some kind of funding for things that had proven themselves in some way uh, as being viable and real and, you know, and deserving of patronage on a, a model other than, like, how popular you are or how nice you can be and, at being... Uh, gregarious to your audience and all of that, you know, 
I would like to see some other merits be involved in the patronage system. I don't know how you would do it, but uh, short of going back to the 14th century, but I'll just <laughs> leave it there. Well, what can we expect from you coming up then? Other than the album on, on the 30th and the live stream as well on Halloween. Well, see, okay. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of complaining here about these things, but I don't know. I'm clever enough to survive and uh, I've made it through all of this stuff. And right now it's kind of no different because um, I've been able to sort of navigate around some of the worst shit that's been going on. Thank God. Um, so I have, I, you know, I have these records that I've been working on for three or four years. Um, it's like, you know, black death, crazy metal records for secret chiefs. Um, which is, again, it's weird. It's like the, the Mr. Bungle thing came up like a year or so, year and a half ago, like right in the middle of working on that stuff. It just seems like all I'm doing is metal lately. <laughs> well, did, did, does it seem a little strange to you that this late in your career, you're essentially just taking it all the way back and you're just fucking, I'm going to do metal for a little bit now? Is it a little strange it's to you? Or, 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 or does it feel like cathartic almost? It's cathartic. You're right. I mean, it's, I, I, and I love that the, you know, the bungle thing is very era specific and we're, we're very intentionally, you know, going back into our 15 year old selves. And, uh, I mean, the, the secret chief stuff is absolutely not that at all. And, uh, it's more, I, I guess it's more modern in, in a sense, metal wise. It's definitely more, it's a lot crazier and more experimental. Um, but also, I think what's exciting about it, and what I haven't seen done properly uh, in metal, is the you know the integration of orchestral instruments and choir and that kind of thing. The writing on that, when it comes to metal, is usually it just comes across really sappy. Uh, and I know that the intention of most metal people is to create kind of dissonance and tensions and stuff like that. And um, I don't know. I'm doing that. I'm basically trying to. Uh, catapult the idea of integrating other instruments in, in metal on metal's terms and not the other way around. So it doesn't like, oh, now we have an opera singer over top of a fucking metal part, you know. No, 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 no. Now we have a, a microtonal dissonant choir going at the same time as this crazy-ass atonal riff. For some reason, that shit has not been done, so, you know, it falls to me to do it. That's what I'm doing. That kind of thing. Well, I'm very excited to hear that. Do you have like any plans that you and Patton would maybe, well, and and Trevor would ever bring an orchestra in for some some new bungle shows? Bring that orchestral to that side of things as well. Well, I know that we were talking about that in 1999. <laughs> that's probably the last time we talked about it. <laughs> um, we haven't talked about like doing anything, you know, past this, um, the Raging Rapid Easter Bunny demo thing. But were we to do something, yeah, sure. I, I, I mean, it's a pretty open-ended world with with Mr. Bungle, if Mr. Bungle was ever doing, uh, working together as a, as it's, you know, as the entity picking up where, where we left off in California or something. And yeah, for sure there would be some, something would be going on that would be, uh, surprising i guess you could say but we have no plans i mean we haven't we haven't gotten to anywhere near talking about anything like that how um how much do you keep up with new music 
not as much as I should, you know. I mean, I essentially get stuff that people send to me. So, I, like, I keep abreast of John Zorn's work. He keeps me very informed of uh, his stuff. Um, it, it's weird. I, I feel like a total jerk because it's become completely insular. Like, it's really just the people that I know whose music I've been hearing lately. I, I should be keeping up with uh, kind of a wider, a wider thing at this point. And I also tend to go backwards. Like, you know, for me, it's very rare thing when I'm listening to a, a music that was recorded before uh, or, you know, after 1990 or something. Usually usually my listening goes much farther back in time than that. I don't, I don't really know why. I mean, there's definitely exceptions to that, but I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think I like sure to be transported to a different world. Maybe the past is a since the beginning. You know, when you look at Mr. Bungle stuff, there's this nostalgic thing going on all the time in, in our 90s period where, you know, it's nostalgic that we didn't have anything to do with. It's before our time. So it's got this kind of uh, alien quality to it. There's something about being immersed in a, in, in a world that's unfamiliar that my listening tends to, to focus on. Well, Trey, I want to thank you so much for coming on here today. I, I think you're one of the coolest multi-instrumentalists ever. So it means a lot to me that you would come on here. And I'm very excited for the new album and the live stream and just excited. Hopefully we get you back on stage sometime soon. And yeah, anything coming up, I hope everybody checks it out. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, man, it was a total pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening. Here, Trey Spruance joined fellow bandmates Mike Patton and Trevor Dunn, along with special guests Dave Lombardo and Scott Ian on the upcoming Mr. Bungle album, The Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny, out October 30th, 2020, and see Mr. Bungle live the very next night, October 31st, for a very special Halloween live stream. Info for that can be found over at mrbungle.live. And do you want to hear the new Mr. Bungle track, A Racist? Do so right now.
This concludes our broadcast day.